to try and keep these Belgians at bay. Oh, no. He thinks he's won. No, no, no. No, it's one lap to go. It's one lap of race to go. Let's clap, school be God's house in it. Hey to everyone here at Mantua, those joining us at Collingswood. Man, we're good to see you in God's house. Are you grateful to be in church today? Hey, if you're here for the first time, I want to welcome you. We, we sincerely are. I know there's a lot happening and our services move quickly and, and uh, some of you really appreciate that. And uh, we try to respect your time and, and have you out when we say we're going to have you out. And, and, uh, but I want you to know sincerely that we are very grateful that you're with us today. Anytime you're in a new environment, there's a lot that happens internally. Um, and uh, we just want to say thank you for being with us today. We're really grateful that you're here today. And, and uh, I suppose through the intro, you understand that you should never give up. You should never, you should never come up short. You should always stay focused on finishing the race well. How many want to finish well? Um, finished well in everything that God's called you to do, um, often we should be less focused on celebrating and more focused on finishing well. Um, and sometimes when, we, when, we, when we're caught up in all the nonsense that's around us, um, it's difficult for us to recognize what God's already done on our behalf. Um, I, I have to say something before I begin. I, 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 some weeks I get so deep into the Word, and then I end up talking to Doc Mannion and Pastor John and, and all these people, and I end up studying for hours and hours, which is fantastic, and, um, but sometimes you, I go a little bit too much into studying, and, uh, and then after I'm fed, I'm like, well, now I have to digest this and put it out in a 30-minute message. And, but as I was preparing, what I believe God wants me to share with you today, and though it may be more unorthodox in my approach, I think I'll be closer stuck to the to the podium today or the table than I normally do, but I want to share with you the content that I have written down. But before that, recently it's become more and more aware to me that in the state of New Jersey, um, we have uh, many laws and different things related to religious liberties that are coming under attack. And, and I've noticed in my own journey with God, I pray to God and say, Lord, help me discern my role in 
in laws and different things in nature. And this is not a political statement. I want to make this statement for those of us who are in Christ, those who are part of the, of the local church, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. And, and I remember praying, I, I remember it was yesterday, praying, God, hey, help me navigate through this dynamic of what should we, your children, do? And as I was going through scriptures, I I came across plenty of verses where the Apostle Paul even instructed Timothy that we are to pray for those who are in authority. And I realized that though there's a lot of religious um, liberties that are coming under attack, and there's votes happening now in our state legislature that are are happening even some as far as, uh, as early as tomorrow, I was convicted immediately. Because the Scripture instructs us who are in Christ to pray for those who are in authority. And I've been raised in church, and I heard that verse shared many times. But I was convicted because I didn't even know who my state assemblymen were. I didn't know who my state senators in my district were. I didn't even know what district I lived in, according to the state. And I was convicted because how difficult is it to pray for someone by name when you don't even know who's in authority over you? And so for I suppose if, if you're here today and you're trying to figure out what can we do, first and foremost is pray. And can I, just, can I just remind you of something? When we say that in church, it can become so cliche that it loses the essence of its power. Now, we either believe that the prayer of the righteous person is powerful and effective or we do not. We believe that prayer shifts things in the spiritual realm and brings about things that are that are pleasing to God and His will, or we do not. But I believe that prayer changes things. And if we believe that, we as children of God must pray. Amen? And not only pray, but be engaged in things. Be engaged in what happens in the, in, 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 in the law and in our government around us so that we can be an influence on people who are in authority so that they can walk in ways that are honoring and pleasing to God. Can you say amen? amen. That's all I have to say about that. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. It says, You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hidden. You are the light of the world. Those who are in Christ, you, you're the light of the world. A city put on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on, a, on its lampstand, on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. I suppose the question that comes immediately after that is, what is the light that I carry? (laughs) It's one thing. Do you notice how within this text he says, let your light shine to others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven? You are the light of the world. You are the, the essence and the presence of Christ in a dark world, in a world that seems to think they can provide solutions from themselves apart from the Word of God. A light in the darkness. This is what the church is called to be, a place of hope in hopelessness, a place of peace in fear, a place of life in death. Light shines, listen to me now, the brightest during times when it's surrounded by darkness. The prophet Isaiah says, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. There's no better place or time for the church to be the church than when there's a crisis going on, not only in your life, not only in the lives around you, but in the nation that we live. Our nation seems to be going through an identity crisis. 
a crisis of faith. There's crisis of addiction in our, in our communities, in our families, crisis of issues of poverty and homelessness, issues of crisis that pop up out of nowhere, the loss of family members, spouses and children, issues of crisis with cancer and, and addiction and all of these things. The list goes on and on, and, and it seems as if we're surrounded by crisis. I want to talk to you today about who He is, who Christ is in the midst of crisis. I don't want us as sons and daughters of God to walk in the midst of crisis and in some way be, be confused or perplexed as to what do I do now? Where am I? How do I engage my family, my society, the leadership? How do I walk forward dealing with crisis? Jesus came to deal with the greatest crisis within humanity. He came to deal with the greatest crisis, and the greatest crisis had to do with our separation from God the Father, and that was an eternal crisis. But often we seem to somehow have this ability to, to separate eternal things from temporal things, and temporal things seem to play this, this big part in our eyes and in our hearts and in our minds, and yet the eternal things can somehow be pushed aside. And though we know they're important, they often become second place to the things that are temporary and the things that are before us. Unforeseen crisis. They can absolutely rock our home, our universities, our church. In the past, crisis used to draw people to the house of God. When things terrible would happen in their family or in their personal life, people would come running to the church. They'd come to the church because they needed to find a place of hope. They had no hope in themselves or in their own future. So they would come to church seeking hope. They would be living in stress and anxiety and with fear, but they would come to the church longing to find peace and hope, and they would come to church. But things in our culture have, have shifted. And we live in a place now in our nation where there are alternatives to people if they so choose, alternatives that may not give you um, what you really desire, but nonetheless, they're still prevalent in our culture today. Alternatives to help you. There are other books to read. You can go on Amazon and find other books to deal with issues of addiction, of helplessness. You can, you can go on Amazon today and type in, I need purpose in my life, and you'll have books coming out of every direction of society, and there's books to help you wherever you may find yourself. There's other books. There's other sources of, of of insight and counseling and all of these things that speak to help you in replacement of the church. It's so strange to me. I've watched over the last 10 years people come into this church. I've watched people come in in light of near incarceration. I've watched people deal with, with, with diagnosis of cancer. I've watched people deal with loss of loved ones. I've watched them almost at the bottom of bottom, and I've watched them say things, and I've watched them cry with tears in their eyes and plead to God, God, just help me with this. Just get me through this. Just get me by. Just help me get past this. I just don't want to deal with it. And they would come in a way, and on the outside, I'm like, they want Jesus. They want Jesus. They really need Jesus. But what they were yearning for was just a, a solution to the pain, a solution to the problem. And they would often, I've watched people be healed of cancer. I've watched people, God move miraculously on their behalf where they don't lose their house, they don't lose their job, they don't lose their car. I've watched people who were incarcerated and who should have been away for years and God would move 
powerfully on their behalf, and they would come out. And I've watched people say, God, if you do this, I'll serve you for the rest of my life. I've watched people overcome addiction, people who were thrown in prison away for months over years of time dealing with addiction, only to know and to say to me in conversation, man, if God gets me through this, if he just gets me through it, man, I'll worship him and I'll serve him to the rest of my life. Everything that I do will be to honor him, please God, and then they walk away. I don't know about you, I just, I often wonder, what is it in people? What is it in us? What is it in us that we seem to think that we can actually solve our deepest, darkest issues? And sometimes when we plead on God and we call on his name, the Bible says that he's faithful and he hears us. And he answers the call of those who are in need and those who are in crisis. And he comes to us. He is our fortress. He is our strength. And he meets us right where we are. He doesn't, see, he doesn't ask us, are you sure you're going to do what you promise? Because he is faithful, even when we are faithless. He comes to us in our moment of pain. And for many of us, he walks through it. And though sometimes our plans don't always align with the will of God, we know that even in the midst of our disappointment and our despair that his presence is ever so close. And so how do we walk through crisis? How do we deal with it? There's an important question I suppose all of us should ask ourselves before we can help other people in their own crisis. It's, we need to ask the question, where do I turn? Where do I run to deal with crisis or pain in my own life? What is the solutions for you? Is it to work harder? earn more money, go to more doctors, do more things. I'm not opposed to any of those, but in what priority are we seeking God? Is he the third or the fourth or the fifth thing? Or do we go to him first and say, God, I need help in this. I need your direction. I need your divine guidance on where I am today. What is your response? I suppose the question would be, why do people turn from Jesus? As we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul illuminates this and gives us greater clarity on to why people turn from God. It says in verse 12, it says, Since this new way gives us such confidence, talking the way in Christ, this new covenant, not living under the law, but living under the grace and the promises of Jesus. Since this new way gives us such confidence, we can be very bold, not timid, not shy, but very bold. But the people's minds were hardened. And to this day, whenever the Old Covenant is being read, the same veil covers their minds so that they cannot understand the truth. And this veil can only be removed, can be removed only by believing in Christ. Yes, even today when they read Moses' writings, their hearts are covered with, the, with that veil that they do not understand. That veil is a law. That law is a law of works. And so their understanding, when they hear that, they don't understand what Christ did and what he came to do and what he offers you as a new covenant. He describes it as a veil being before their eyes. They don't see it. They cannot see it. And he continues on. But whenever someone turns to the Lord, that's what I want you to hear this morning. But whenever someone turns to the Lord, everybody say turns. When someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. 
the veil is taken away. For the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image. That's a powerful thing, amen? Whenever someone turns to the Lord, you know, our, 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 we exist as a church to introduce and disciple, to introduce people to Jesus. And I often get the picture in my mind, it requires something of people. It requires them to turn. It requires them to believe. It requires them to act in faith. It is never this. This is why crisis is often a, a difficult thing to evaluate the position of someone's heart. Because just because someone's going through a crisis does not mean that the heart is where it should be. I often realize that when people are in church for a short season and they drift away, it's because they got what they wanted from God. Or it's because they weren't being fulfilled in the way that they wanted. And the problem is with that is that we don't come here to serve ourselves. We don't come here to God and say, God, I just need you to fix this. And when you fix it, I'll, I'll figure it out. And then other, others come to church and we have this chip on our shoulder because we're like the church is filled with hypocrites. Can I tell you something? We, the church is made up of people who are sinners. Sinners. People who are separated from God because of the sin in their life. But we are no longer dead in our sin. We are alive in Christ. We are redeemed. We are renewed. We are justified. And we don't proclaim to be perfect people, but we claim righteousness because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so we're called and purified in His image by not our works. But not our works. Church, we're not called to works. We're called to believe. It is faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. That's why this is not a humanitarian aid organization. That is why the essence of what we have, the substance of what we have, is not wrapped up in us carrying food and giving it to the hungry. Jesus says we are called to do that and respond in a way of love towards people. But we give why? Because he first gave. Everything that we have the ability to do, first we received it from him. So we say, well, we, 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 we should give. We should give. And we do. And we give generously. But why? Because John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave. And it's in that gift of giving that we become givers of generosity and we are generous to the people around us. Why? Because we're just good people? No, not at all. Because he is good. And out of his goodness and his generosity, we become generous people. In the same way, it says in 1 John, that we cannot even love in our own capacity. We love because he first loved us. He first loved us. We live in a sense of responding to the divine initiation of who God is. Hmm. As I was going through this, I was so confused at times. Because I'm saying, man, if, if crisis is happening all around us, how do we reflect Christ so well? How do we represent him so well? And it's a dangerous place to be in thinking that we just do good deeds for people. That in some way, if we just do these things, and we do this, and we do this, and we do this, and all of a sudden, everything on the outside looks great. We're giving all this money. We're serving all these people. We're doing all of this stuff. But if nothing changes on the inside, 
If nothing in our heart changes on the inside, if we never get to a place in our soul, in our heart, to say, God, I really surrender my life to you. I really give you everything. God, whatever your word says, I will walk in obedience according to that. If we never get to that place, there's no substance in what we do. We lose the very power of what we carry as believers if nothing changes inside of us. You want to know what you bring to a crisis greater than any other person who walks this earth is you bring Jesus. You bring his presence. You bring his grace and his mercy and his redemptive healing. That's what you bring into the midst of crisis. More than any financial aid, more than any clothing, more than any food you could offer somebody, you bring the presence of Jesus. You know, you can do things for people and not even love them. You could do things for people to appease them, not to love them. But we're called not to just do tasks and good deeds. We're called to walk by faith. And it is out of our response of belief and trust in him that we are caused, we are prompted, we are initiated to do good deeds for people. Do you understand? It comes out of our understanding of who God is in us and what he's done for us. You know, Jesus had a dialogue with the Pharisees. And I suppose this is a good way to understand it. Jesus was teaching, and I suppose I would have loved to have been around some of Jesus' teachings early on, and some more than others, I suppose, if I had to pick. And this one is fascinating because Jesus seems to not just give them a one line of correction, he seems to just continue on. But I want you to hear what he says to, and I'm only reading you a few verses. This is a snippet of the entire, entire conversation. But Jesus says, What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? He says, You hypocrites. He says, For you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. He says, you blind Pharisees, first wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will become clean too. We serve a God who works from the inside out. That's how he works. He doesn't work in behavioral modification. He works in transformation. The Spirit of God comes in us and begins to change our hearts, begins to change us from the inside out. He says, what sorrow awaits you, teachers? He says, you're hypocrites. He says, for you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. He says, outwardly you look like righteous people, but inwardly your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. Do you know how we claim to be righteous? It's not in our ability to make our lives look good. (laughs) It's not in your ability to make everything look perfect. Christ says that's what makes you a hypocrite when you try to make everything look perfect. But he calls broken people to himself. He calls us to himself to say, listen, this is how this works. You're broken. You have a natural propensity to run from me and not towards me. You have a natural propensity to fix everything by yourself, to to solve everything yourself, to fix everything yourself. But you can't. You cannot get to God alone. And Jesus comes right where we are, meets us in the midst of our crisis. And he offers us salvation. And he offers us this free gift of grace. 
And I find it interesting because as God calls us, as he calls us to himself, we often wonder, God, I, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I'm good enough. None of us are good enough. The Bible says none are righteous, not even one. But when he calls us to himself and he begins to do a work on the inside of us, you'll begin to find things really change in your life. Things begin to really take shape. God begins, he doesn't mean that every bad thing about you disappears, but God begins to purify you. Can I encourage you, church, spend time with God. Spend time with God. Make time during the busyness of your days to just be before God. Give Him your best time. Give Him, give him whatever, whenever day you, whatever time of the day you're most attentive. Some of you it's early in the morning. Some of you it's late at night. Some of you it's midday. Whenever it is, give God your best. Give Him your best. And just stay before God and have an opportunity just to hear His voice. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you in the midst of a crisis. Maybe you're in one today. Maybe you're surrounded by people that are dealing with crisis. Maybe you're aware of the crises that are happening around us in our nation. Wherever you are, begin to intercede and pray. Man, there's power in prayer. But more than that, it's in the midst of crisis that God makes us aware of who we are in Him. Ephesians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul is talking to the church, but more importantly, the leadership of the church. And he says to the leadership of the church that God has given us specific, specific roles and functions. And those roles and functions are not random. They're not off the cuff. They're intentional. But I want you to hear what he says. He says, these gifts that Christ gave the church, he gave us these gifts. He gave us apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers it's the fivefold ministry. It is the leadership of the church, the believers of Christ. And why did he give it to us? He says their responsibility is to equip God's people. My responsibility as being part of the family of God is to equip God's people. For what? To do his work. To do his work and to build up the church, the body of Christ. Can I tell you something? You have power in Christ. You have power in Christ. You can pray for the person in need at your work. Whatever job you work in, you can be the one to pray for people. You can be the one to intercede for people. You can be the light in the midst of darkness. You don't need an invitation for a pastor to show up. You don't need someone else to go on your behalf. You are called. You are the light of the world. It's not the person next to you, beside you. You are the light of the world. To make a difference where God's placed you today, right now. That's what he calls us to, church. And I love this because that word is significant. When it says that it, our responsibility of the fivefold ministry is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. He says this will continue, the building up of the people of God, until all such are in a unity of faith and the knowledge of God's Son, that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. That word equip. It's a fascinating word because you and I would think the, to equip somebody in a coaching sense or in a teaching sense, you would give them something they don't already have, right? You would say, okay, you don't have the skills yet. You don't understand the plays. You don't understand the protocol. You don't understand the policies and procedures. I will equip you accordingly. But that word means something much more significant than that. It doesn't necessarily mean to even add on as much as it means to actually restore and mend that which was broken. That same word is used in the context of when the nets, the, their nets were torn 
and they had to remend their nets. That word in the Greek means the same thing, to restore back, to put back in its original place. Do you want to know why the local church is so powerful? Because together we are being equipped to do God's work. We are constantly being equipped. We are being restored. We are being mended back to do that which God has called us to do. And apart from the body of Christ, we won't be able, we will not be equipped to do that which he's called us to do. I want to read you this in 2 Corinthians. He says, in many times of his ministry, there's been difficult oppression, trials, persecution. But in all things, God is faithful. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. <laughs> Peter and John were walking into the temple and there, on their way into the temple, sat a blind man, crippled, sorry. And that lame man sat there his entire life. And as they were walking by him that day, they had this interesting dialogue. And the dialogue is interesting because I suppose it answers the question, what do we really have as those in Christ? And the man was there begging for things, saying, hey, what do you have for me? I need money. And the scripture records it as they walk by, they, and the man's begging. They say, look at us. And the scriptures say they fix their eyes on him, on Peter and John, and they, they're staring at him intently. And Peter looks at him, and I love the context of this, because it doesn't say he just randomly says it for the people. He looks the man in the eyes, and he says, silver and gold I do not have. But what I have, I offer you. And he says, in the name of Jesus, stand up. And the man was healed. Church, what we bring to a broken and dark world is the power of Jesus more than anything else. And I want you to know whatever crisis you may be in or crisis that surrounds you, that he who's within you is greater than all of that. Greater is he who's in us than he who's in the world. Let me pray for you today. Can you bow your heads and close your eyes? Hey, thanks for watching. I pray that that message was a blessing to you. And I pray it's encouraged you um, wherever you find yourself in your journey of life. We never like to end any one of our services without giving you um, the opportunity to say yes to Jesus. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus was raised to life, and you will be saved. And salvation is a free gift. You can't earn it, you can't buy it, you can't work towards it. It can only be received. It's this incredible grace that comes only from God. So the Bible says that right where you are in your season, not trying to fix anything else, not trying to get yourself better, not waiting or putting off salvation, but today, to make the decision to say yes to Jesus, that you know you can't save you, that you need Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of your life. The Bible says it only requires you to say a simple prayer. So repeat after me, just say this prayer. Say, dear, dear Jesus, 
Forgive me of my sins. I believe that you died on the cross and rose again. Come into my life and make me new. I'm now a Christian. Christ now lives in me. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, if you just said that prayer, we believe that your eternity is secure in Christ. One of the things that I want to encourage you to do, your next step, if you would, um, is to tell somebody, whether you're telling us through the website and contacting us and informing us or telling someone else at a local church that maybe you visited. The second thing I want to encourage you to do is to be planted in a healthy Bible-based church, whether it's True North Church or another church close to you, find a church community to do life with. Man, we're so excited for you. Make sure that you get a Bible. If you don't have one, please reach out to us. We'd love to bless you with the Bible and encourage you on your journey with Jesus. I'm excited for you. I truly believe that your best days are still ahead.